Hello and welcome to Make Language Great Again. Today, it is my great joy and pleasure to welcome Harvoy of Geopolitics and Empire podcast. Uh, we recently, well, recently Harvoy interviewed me and that was so much fun that I just had to return the favor. <laughs> so I, I look forward to our conversation today and welcome. Yes, thanks for having me. Um, and it, it was a lot of fun. And I mean, you're a slightly different guest from what I usually have on. And people liked it, judging from the comments, they very much enjoyed uh, your take. So that was a lot of fun. Oh, cool. Thank you. Uh, so what got you into your podcast and what got you into this topic? Well, um, right. So I, I guess you could trace it. I, I just, when I was a teenager, I just loved reading. Um, so, uh, and I, I just, every about everything, you know uh spiritual religious stuff history politics and so i studied uh in geneva in 2008 and 9 the school of diplomacy and um then i i got a job i went into education so i became a teacher high school and university history and politics and what happened was i was just so passionate about my subject you know i want to know about history i want to talk about you know the war in syria the everything that's going on and i found most people around me I just not interested, <laughs> you know, it's just like normies, like, uh, let's go, we'll talk about the weather, sports, let's go, um, you know, take, go check in at your job and then check out and go home. And I'm like, where's the vigor, right? As a human being, like, I want to like get to, you, you know, right. for, that for me, this is what life is about, you know, going to the deepest questions and, and uh, that, that sort of thing. And, and even my, myself, like just the, the, my past, just traveling all over the world. Like I've gone to Mongolia, lived in the deserts of the, of the Gobi. I visited China. I've lived in Kazakhstan. I've been to Russia. I've shaken hands with Gorbachev uh, five, five years ago. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, I didn't know I do. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We, we, you might not like me for that. I don't know. Most Russians don't like Gorby, but <laughs> they, that's what they say. But um, well, yeah, he was so, a bit of a traitor, but yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I'm just intense in that sense in every which way. And so I just had this idea as a teacher and I'm always trying to be the best at what I do. So cutting edge, you know, state of the art, trying to the most innovative techniques. And so I just decided there's all these people that I listen to on all these alternative media channels. What, what if I just try to Skype with them um, with my students? So I, it was kind of like uh, using my students to try to get uh audience with these guests uh, and so i reached out some of the first people were lord christopher monkton the, the climate skeptic oh. I, I, I love lord christopher monkton and dr paul craig roberts and other people like that and ray mcgovern the cia former cia officer oh yeah he's great yeah, those are my you can go back on my channel it's still up from like 2012 it's called dissident thinker on youtube and so i, I would just shoot a mail and say hey you know would you want to talk with my students? And they're like, okay. And then I recorded it. And then I just threw up the recordings. This was while I was teaching. And so that's kind of where the podcast was born. And then around 2015 and 16, I said, I'm going to do a proper podcast. Uh, and then from 2015 to 20, 2016 to 20 to the last year, it was just moonlighting, right? The podcast, like I was working full time and just doing it like Midnight, right? Moonlighting, as they say. And <laughs> when the moon is out, like midnight working on a podcast, one a week. Uh, and then finally, um, with all of this COVID-1984, um, uh, I just said, I can't go back. I don't want to go back to teaching. Uh, you know, they've got mandates and stuff. So it's I can't even go <laughs> teach. And so and I, this is my passion. I want to try to live, live uh, full time doing podcasting. So I'm in that process now. It's not financially quite yet sustainable. But we're going to see what happens. And I'm having a lot of fun. Um, just I did two podcasts yesterday. Uh, and then, yeah, I just got all, it's, it's, it's having a lot of fun. So, yeah. And your work is amazing. Very, very impressive and very much out there. It's, it's, it's great. Like out what there. I like about your work, it's refreshing. Like you actually think, which is, which should be normal, which should be like how human beings are in general. But, you know, in our times, it's a little bit of a feature, like a special feature. Thank you. We, so, we, exactly. Yeah, I, I've even have guests. I, I actually read the books uh, of my guests and they say, oh, like you actually read it. Most interviewers don't, you know, and when you say out there, what do you mean? I've had listeners say I go beyond the Overton window, which 
is what I try to do. <laughs> no, to, to me, it's perfectly natural because well, I'm also, I have an Eastern European background. So that was the intellectual training, especially like after the Soviet Union collapsed. And there was this rigor and hunger and thirst for essentially for honesty, for intellectual integrity and philosophy and all those things. So I grew up thinking it's normal. So people can debate and people can disagree and that's perfectly fine. And then I guess the American culture, even before 9-11, it was, a, well, it was kind of like complacent in a way that you can't blame people for having a good life. If, if you have a good life, I guess you don't really think too much. It's kind of like you're well-fed. So I think this kind of worked to the detriment of the culture because the life was good. And so I noticed the lack of curiosity. Plus, after I moved here, I was in the Midwest. So... And it's, but I should not be talking about myself because I'm interviewing you for a change. <laughs> but, I, 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 but I would call it the brave new world. It's kind of like, that's what it is, what you just described. It's this Soma, right? People yeah. just, you don't have to ban books because no one wants to read them. It's, it's the brave new world, like the, especially the American, American dream, the American lifestyle. That was one of the reasons I wanted to leave uh, America because culture, like everyone around me just wanted to get drunk on the weekends and be promiscuous and... Uh, talk about sports and stupid things and i'm like man i'm going i'm going to go find myself in the gobi see you guys and um it's funny you mentioned europe i remember back in the day my my croatian cousin uh, who studied in your uh, croatian universities it's more rigorous as you said and she was even telling me like she was assigned reading by william engdahl who is this like best-selling geopolitical author but he's like an alternative you know type of author and i i later on it's just funny how I got to, I've interviewed him like half a, half a dozen times. He, he's great. But the fact that at a European university, they assigned William Engdahl, which is a completely great but different way of thinking. They would never assign someone like that in, in the U.S. university. Yeah, well, it's a different approach to culture, I guess. But now it's interesting how it comes back. And I really want to get your take on that. Like from my perspective, the Soviet Union is coming back here. Well, as we discussed in our interview before on, on your podcast, but then it feeds into people starting to think, but in very interesting ways, because it seems like the college students are very much like the Soviet, like the Soviet time college students. They're thinkers, but they're thinking in the direction of like Marxism and all those things. And because they haven't suffered from it, they take it as it's real. But then that oppressive direction also feeds into thinking uh, and people who are censored, all of a sudden they are, they are fully alive because they're censored. So oppression gives birth to the real culture, like in the way it works, it worked in the Soviet Union. So it's, it's fascinating to me. So what, what are your thoughts on that kind of cycle? This is, yeah, this is absolutely fascinating. I can't speak uh, specifically to the U.S., youth and education, because I, I've been for 10 years uh, in Mexico teaching, but it's still almost the same and very similar. And I've had a lot of international students in any case, uh, when I, in my time in Mexico. But it's funny you mentioned that because I was having this, when you said this, the people who, you've got the two classes, right? The, the, the people who go along with the cultural revolution, let's say, mm -hmm. right? The, the right. Marxists or whatever totalitarian new normal ideology there is. And right. then the dis dissidents, right? Like, right. <laughs> like us. And I was just having this argument with my my parents. So my parents lived, were born and lived under Yugoslav uh, Yugoslavia, right? Mm -hmm. uh, communism light, right? Socialism light. Not as bad as Soviet Union, but um, and you know they went to America, free. They had the freedom now, and now America is becoming again Soviet, let's say communist totalitarian. Right. And you would think they were born in that, and then they went to a free country and now they're gonna die in what they came from right a totalitarian right. regime but now you would think that they would be more braver right like more dissident but they're not and they're telling me like hey like shut up keep keep quiet like don't, don't stop doing what you're doing you know what i'm saying and i'm like I can't. I, if they, if if they, if if I have to have my bank account frozen, so be it. You know, I I just can't not be a dissident. And it's just interesting that they're acting like this now. And we're going back to the students, uh, at least the ones. So I worked at a globalist uh, institution here in in, um, 
in Mexico. And I actually discovered that they are actually like officially linked to the World Economic Forum. So, oh, great. I just, yeah, <laughs> um, like literally. And, but, anyways, my st the students were like 90%, uh, however you would describe it, like, slightly Marxist, Marxist, leftist, new normal right. type thinking. And every topic, it was just total consensus. Like I talk about climate change. I, that's when I brought in Lord Christopher Moncton. So you had Al Gore actually came to our campus. They had to pay him 200 grand. And he, he had to use these questions were screened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's like, oh, global warming, right? Uh, he's the, the prophet of global warming. And then Lord Christopher Moncton is like the anti-Al Gore. He's the, right. the prophet of... Uh, you know, global warming is, is not true. And he, he just for free gave us two hours of his time at midnight, British, British time. And with my students, I would take one day, we examine all the info of, you know, the Al Gore perspective. And then the next day we look at the counter perspective, which is what's supposed to be done, but it's not done. And, um, you know, 90% of the students would go with the official climate change ideology, or we talk about 9-11 or, you know, any other topic, they always go, with that mainstream thinking and it's it was so difficult that's one reason i don't want to go back to education because it's like you feel like you're pushing against like you like i'm king canute right telling the waves to like pushing against this massive wave that's just going to overwhelm me it's just getting harder and harder in in edu in the field of education to to do this kind of work but then it's coming i mean the kids well all kids think that they're smarter than adults i mean that's kind of normal i guess so, but do they feel that, like, like did they uh, feel like it was coming from them? Like, they completely internalized it? That was their thinking? Or did they feel like it was coming from, like, corporate thinking structures? Yeah, that's a, the fascinating aspect. I don't think they, they're not that conscious. I think it's like they're lemmings. They just, I think what you said, that they think they believe it. Because the, I don't think you have that level of awareness. I mean, I would think that if if you realize that it's not coming from you and you're being sold, it's being sold to you, then you would question that. Right? right. That's how I am. I'm like, wait a minute. If, you know, some big corporation selling me this, then, you know, I, I, I want to think for myself. I don't want to be told what to think. Um, so I, I think they just, yeah, I don't think they were that self-aware or that crit critically thinking to come to that realization. They just assumed, Oh, this is how it is. Yeah. It makes sense. This is what I believe. And plus the, it's very effective. This group, consensus you know people talk about the tavistock institute right. in mm -hmm. britain and all these psychological you know they've been doing this stuff for years brain you know mind control and brainwashing us for decades and um i think that and that's what's going on with the covid stuff now it's this group consensus uh you know even my kid she was like i want to wear uh, a mask and i'm like no you're not gonna wear a mask but she wants to be part of the group right and it's like you know, it just works, this group consensus, this psychology that we have that we want to be part of the group. And uh, I think it's people who don't have enough self, um, how would you say, uh, self something like, I don't care if I'm alone, you know, on my own, I have enough um, faith in myself, or how, how would you describe it? Like, uh, yeah, I don't know the word. <laughs> well, confidence is like yeah, security, confidence. I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah, something like that. No, but I think when when you're a kid, especially when you're a teenager, like late teens, being a part of the group is like critical. And corporations and whoever the investors, they know how to use that precisely. And well, that is that is very interesting. But I mean, I remember that I was actually on the uh, uh, cusp of the collapse of the Soviet Union and all the magical freedoms that we lived through as a nation, and especially me being a kid that was like. The best thing ever like all this freedom coming in and western music and great i mean people saying the 90s were horrible like as a kid it was awesome but now i realize i was brainwashed because that while it had definitely benefits and the feeling in hearts of the people was real but really it was multinationals like clearing up the market for themselves and so it was not pure at all it was pure in my heart. That's why I remember it with such fondness, but it was not pure genuinely. And it took me a while into adulthood to think like, oh my God, I was actually duped. And all this wonderful freedom and people glued to their television sets, like thinking politicians are honest now. So we're, we're watching this real debate by politicians on television and they're fighting for us. And 
it's finally like Soviet Union was lame and horrible, but now it's real. It's like real democracy, real honesty. Well, it wasn't, but people felt it. And I remember everybody was waiting for like television program with the debates of the, the deputies of whatever parliament. Everybody was glued. It was all bullshit. So fascinating. It's so fake. Like uh, I, I've got a, I recorded another podcast yesterday with Johnny Vedmore, who's great. Uh, he he yeah, writes yeah. for for Whitney Webb, and and uh, we were talking about this. He just put out a new article, and I agree with him that it's like it's it's done. Like democracy is dead. These multinationals have taken over decades ago. All of our governments, and from the beginning of COVID, this is how I felt. Like I still had some hope in some politician here or there that I might vote for or support like local politician in, in Mexico or Croatia or America, where I'm a citizen of. And after COVID, it's like, in the beginning, like 2020, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm done. I'm never voting again. I'm just done. I'm just going off to my parallel structure uh, in the woods. This is just like so obvious. It's just, everyone's taken over. There's, there's no hope. <laughs> it's just... Yeah. Um, but then, and I agree with you, when I was young, I went through a leftist phase, like the good leftis leftism. Um, I was reading all these, um, even in the beginning, I was reading George Monbiot, who writes for The Guardian. And it's like, now he's nuts. This guy's crazy. But um, I went through that phase of like learning about the, the bad corporations and, you know, the environmental damage that's done and all of these things. Um, but then, as you say, the Soviet Union sucked. Then the 90s came and then you had this corporate takeover. What would a good society look like for you? Like, those are both bad examples. Well, what would be a good example for you of, obviously, we can't have something perfect or utopia, but what, what would have been a good way that Russia uh, could have gone in the 90s? Well, I don't know about Russia going in a good way because Russia is very big. Like my theory is that human beings by nature are not capable of sane structures that are very big because in order to behave decently towards others, we need to relate. So that's just psychological basis. If we can't relate, then we start acting like assholes just because, you know, it just takes over because I mean, I protect mine, but whatever is not mine, like anything goes. I mean, that's kind of how human beings behave. So I think that problems started, well, really, I think, I think we might have discussed it. The problem started when people started measuring time because then they went off the natural cycle and then the rest is like for thousands of years, it was kind of going farther and farther from natural. But as far as geopolitics, using your terminology, uh, I think as soon as people started getting into empire business, that's when it kind of you know, went off because it's just not possible. So I think this is my theory is that before people started doing like institutionalized religions that are a particular kind and like empire, empire. So when people were, for the lack of a better word, indigenous, not that it was perfect because of course it was not, but when it was local and grounded and nature-based, it was actually, I think, the best we can have as a human being, as human beings, because people related. It was all about like emotional integrity, being with nature. Plus, you can't lie too much, because if you are looking at, if you get delusional, and then a tiger will probably eat you. So there's not much margin for being delusional. I can go. Yeah, ahead. yeah, yeah. Or the village will correct you. Um, and I, I would also say like what you're discussing, the time. And that's another thing that bothered me in America is like this obsession with time. Like still when I talk to Americans, uh, even my parents are like, what's the uh, what's the temperature in Mexico? I'm like, I never check the temperature. I don't care. Or the time. Like I don't wear watches anymore. When I was living in America, it's like I'm wearing a watch. I'm always checking the time. I'm every day. I'm checking the the temperature, the weather. Like all of these, it's it's, it's very technocratic in, in a sense. And it's like after I went to go live in in villages in, in Mongolia and here in Mexico, it's like 
I don't know. Who cares about the weather? Here's the sun. It's warm. Do I, do I really care if it's 20 degrees or, or 30 or 31 degrees? That's very a technocratic mindset. And it's kind of like you say, it's like, who cares? And then you're, you're more free. You, you feel like you, I felt that pressure in America where it's like, uh, you, you, even if you have nothing to do, you feel this pressure like you have something to do and you're stressed and you can't relax no matter what. You have to keep working, keep making money. It's like, I needed to get away from that. I need to unlearn, un, undo all of these things and just learn how to like relax just to be. So, yeah. Where did you spend your childhood? Was it in Yugoslavia more or more in the States? It was mo mostly in the States, but every single year we went for like three months. At, like since I was like one year, two years old or whatever to Yugoslavia at the time. And then when I was in the fifth grade, it was like 1994, we, we moved to for a year to, to split Croatia at the tail end of the war. Uh, in split, the, the Serbs had not gotten to split. So we were relatively safe. There were some rumbling, rum, rumblings of, of war on the outskirts. But so, yeah, well, I went for a year when I was in fifth grade and we went back to the U.S. and then. I went back to high school in Croatia and we went back to America and then I finished university and I went off to Mongolia, Switzerland, uh, Mexico, Kazakhstan. So, yeah. But do you have a memory of whatever the totalitarian or the, the communist way of thinking of society or? No, for, from Yugoslavia. No. Cause it was kind of like, um, well, I was too young. I remember more like, 1990 right like 89 yeah. 90 and, I, and when you're a kid you just pick up on the political aspects it was kind of like what you were right. saying in, in russia it's like i came and i just my grandparents and and family and you know the croatian culture and food um so i didn't pick up but i mean my, i would hear stories like they would tell me that i was told well us as croatians that yugoslavia that the serbs had the upper hand in the rule of yugoslavia uh and that um that croats were maybe slightly more uh, oppressed like you, you couldn't express uh, croatian um i don't know nationalism in, in yugoslavia you get beat over the head or persecuted in some way not not as bad as, as say in other regimes but i mean this is what i was told but it's funny though you have people who say oh it was good in the yugoslavia days it's just some kind of cognitive dissonance where at times in their life they'll say oh yugoslavia sucked we couldn't express our croatianness and then when they think about class or economy it's like oh it was better we had like more things i don't know it's just I, i'm sure you've heard russians that same experience with Russians talking about the Soviet Union and Russia today. It's, it's yeah, I think well, the Soviet Union varied in time because by the time I was around, it was kind of at the very end, and so it evened out. So the prosperity was a little more. I mean, in the stores there was nothing, but you could go the back door, and and I was terrified, like you know, my parents like took me going to the back door and <laughs> where all the goods were. And if you go front door, it's empty shelves. The back door, there's plenty of stuff. The, the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody was actually fed very decently, but it wasn't through direct methods of going to a store and obtaining groceries. <laughs> I, this actually reminds me, like my uncle, like, yeah, this was like the late 80s and early 90s where they would always tell us, bring us American brand name stuff like Levi's jeans. Yeah. And I, I remember hearing the same thing about Russians who like they wanted, you know, Levi jeans or other things like this. And yeah, there was that same thing in Yugoslavia, Croatia. But from what, from what I heard, uh, I think I told you that when, you know, we did the other interview in your podcast, Yugoslavia was not considered real socialism by Soviet standards. It was like, oh, they have bad socialism. They no, don't that, have real socialism. That's what I would say. It was, <laughs> from what I gathered, it was much less stricter of an authoritarian regime than, say, you know, Soviet Union or some other countries, from what I gather. And so when COVID happened, you saw right away that it was bullshit. Yeah, right away, like, <laughs> right away. I didn't take it seriously at all. Like, my employers were saying, oh, freaking out, because, you know, and I'm like, oh, man, come on. And um, again, I, I, I may have mentioned before, like, what informs me of this is, I mean, people, I mean, people can make fun of me. I don't care. I'm, I'm a simple Bible-believing Christian, and um, the prophecy for me, and I've had a number of prominent guests on who are also Christians, like Patrick Wood and... Um, 
uh, and others, the technocracy guy. Um, and for me, it's like, it paints the picture of a future. If you read like the book of Daniel or Revelation, that there will, history will progressively get worse and worse. And there will be then one time where it's never been as bad as it's going to be at this moment in time in history. And then it's going to be, it talks about a world dystopian government, like a dictatorial global government regime. That's what the Bible implies. And so I take that. And then, of course, I think critically, you know, scientific method and all that. And like, okay, that's what it says. But now I need, you know, the science and the facts to corroborate that. And that's what we're seeing. You know, I, I just got a whole bunch of, you know, I got all these books. You read all these great people that I have on my podcast who are confirming that, um, you know, spiritual pr prophetic aspect that we see this world government is this scientific dictatorship technocracy. You know, they want to mark, they want to control everyone digitally. And so that's what, that's the seed of what I could see happening with COVID because you saw there was just a pretext to bring in the, the social credit system, the vaccine passport social credit system. And it's global like this time in history, like we've seen in the past empires and, you know, not totalitarian regimes in Europe during the world war world wars attempt this regionally, maybe like if they had succeeded in Europe, then, you know, there were ideas that Hitler was going to go take over America afterwards. Right. So if they had succeeded in Europe, they would have taken America and the whole world who knows, but with COVID, it's like, yeah, this was obvious that it's nothing at all what they're telling us. And you, I could see right through what was going on. So I'm like, I'm heading for the Mexican hills. Yeah. <laughs> so this is when you moved to Mexico. Yeah, yeah, 2020. Like I was, my plan was to go back to my homeland of Croatia on the sea, uh, enjoy, you know, Croatian sea seafood and, and 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 the Adriatic Sea and enjoy life but you know sometimes dystopia happens and so yeah I, I determined that it would be best to go back to mexico because uh, and some of my uh, um guests confirmed this where they said you know the technocracy will come first to developed countries and it will take longer time to come to developing third world countries and that was one of the reasons i said i mean if we go back to europe that then the this control system I will be experiencing it sooner in Europe than I would in, say, Latin America. So uh, let's go to Latin America. So how is it over there? Like, how does it feel, the everyday life? Like, what do you have to deal with as far as COVID restrictions or not? It's not that bad yet. For me, it's, at this point, it's more, uh, how do I say, mental. Because I know, like, it's it's coming, but um, the in many... One thing is Mexicans have complied. They have succumbed to this. I'm trying to figure out why. Uh, maybe it's because they've been under the Spanish empire for, for so long, for centuries, and they've just become compliant. I'm like, where is that you know, revolutionary spirit? You had two revolutions uh, you know, over the, the past two centuries. Where, where is that? You know, pull it out of you. Even other Mexicans, Mexicans are telling me like, uh, they were telling me like in Michoacan, the state of Michoacan is where the more fiery Mexicans are. And that they're not succeeding there. Like they have issues with the narcos and Michoacan and they're not really demonstrating that. And if, so if they're not demonstrating that fire, then they don't think in the rest, anywhere else in New Mexico that we're going to get this rise out of Mexicans. Who knows? Nobody knows, but um, what's, well, what, what do you think? Are people, have people been stressed? People were dying. They were dying to medical mismanagement for the most part, but like, is it what really got people you think that they saw people dying and they really they were like, traumatized by that yeah i think it's the same that's happened in all the other countries because you can see the same type of uh, succumbing to this brainwashing and psychological operation propaganda i think it's somehow it's it's just it's this global it's worked in every country pretty much and so it, i tell mexicans like all my life, you're all complaining about the government's corrupt. Like we see literally local federal police, you know, the, the government's working with the narcos. They're literally taking people, police taking people and handing them off to narcos to be exterminated, like um, kidnappings and extortions. And the government's so corrupt and everyone's talking about this. And it's like, oh, all of a sudden, you know, public health, oh, they care for us. I'm like, are you serious? You think these guys who yesterday were killing us all of a sudden care for your health? 
And so there's just the cognitive dissonance, Stock, Stockholm syndrome. I don't get it. But well, I mean, what's happening here is you're pretty free. The only thing is the masks in many re- like businesses. Uh, you have to indoors. wear masks. Indoors. Yeah, like when you go into a, a business, there are still like a number of businesses, like in the main urban areas. Um, but then if, if there's like small shops out of the way, they don't really really bother with masks. So that regime is still in place. But just a month ago, they installed the vaccine passport. Uh, it's, oh, wow. it's di- it differs by state. Uh, and so in this state, they just introduced it for like bars. None of the places that I really go, like bars, casinos, um, com- the, well, conference centers. There's a huge expo center. Like it's just expo. It's huge here where I am. And we would go there. They have a huge uh, every year book fair. Uh, and then all kinds of fairs, like for eco, alternative health stuff and you know, baby stuff and, and furniture. And so we would go to that. Now we can't because you need a vaccine certificate certificate. And I think that's going to expand. Uh, and so, so right now you're pretty free except for the mask regime. Uh, and then some places that really want you to get the gel. Uh, and, uh, that's how it is now. And they've just installed the vaccine certificate. And then I believe it's going to expand from there. And some States, they're more stricter with the vaccine certificate. Like in one, I heard, even for supermarkets and parks, nature. Are you kidding me? Uh, um, parks? Yeah. Because they, why? They, to, to protect the trees? To protect the trees from, um, you know, Omicron. I don't know. <laughs> wow. And so how do you envision, like, what is your feeling? Because like on my end, every day, I kind of, I debate with myself because some days it feels like they're just moving forward and they want the system to be installed, which is the fourth industrial revolution and like whatnot, all that. So that they're just going ahead no matter what. And some days I feel like, you know, we have a lot of say and they're just scared and desperate. And, you know, what is your feeling on that? I, I mean, I don't know why. I, just, I can't explain it, but I, it comes across in my podcast. But I feel I just I think it also goes back to my biblical perspective that if this is like foretold that this is going to happen, then there's no stopping it. And a coupled, coupled with what we're seeing, like with the, their plans, and I just see it advancing, maybe not the way that they exactly want it or with a different speed, or it's like hodgepodge, right? They, they, they make an inroad here, uh, they have a setback, and then maybe it takes years or, you know, it takes them longer. I mean, one benefit maybe... Like in Mexico, it might be easier for parallel structures. Like, I mean, if you go farther out, you're like, there's no government there. So, I mean, there's hope in that sense where it's maybe harder to apply like in Mexico. Uh, um, But still, I feel they're advancing. Like I've studied where I'm living. I I feel like most, as you said earlier, the politicians are co-opted. They're bought off, especially like in Mexico. It's so corrupt. They just... You know, before it was the CIA or the narcos buying off the politicians. Now it's, you know, Davos. And the city where I am, I discovered in 2020, I saw this, uh, our crazy governor um, promoting, here's just an example. He was promoting all this digitalization, right? And we know that's part of the fourth industrial revolution, right? reset stuff. And so I, I was following his feed just to see what's going on. And he's posting these digital passes. So... I was here for 10 years. I, I never saw them spend much money on like public works and infrastructure and stuff. And I come back after COVID and it's just insane the amount of money they've been putting into public transport and all this infrastructure. I'm like, this is weird. They weren't doing this before. Why are they doing this now? Where's the money coming from? And so I and they're, and they're promoting cashless, digital, everything digital, right? And he, he's holding up these digital bus passes and these new public transport buses, and they're just pushing it. And he says, oh, we're a resilient city. Like, What's a resilient city? I, ah, I see. <laughs> and it's like, those are the special Rockefeller projects. Right. A hundred of them all over the city, the city. And then I find the actual pages of the Mexican government. You know, it says Rex, resilient city, resilient cities get financing from the Rockefeller Foundation. I find the concept paper. It says promoting a cashless society. It actually says pre-crime. So to put in like, and then here the governor is just pushing um, internet. They're installing internet to cover the whole region. 
Like that's not for our benefit. That's to manage the technocracy. Uh, you know, to manage the pre-crime system. It says surveillance and 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 cashless society and all this stuff. And so it's like that I'm pessimistic because they're advancing with that. Like they've got all these plans, the government, they're they're carrying it out, they're taking away car lanes and putting in bike lanes, they're pushing the public transport. So because they're going to take away our cars from us. So you won't have a car eventually at some point, uh, or it'll be very few people will have a car and you'll just be stuck with public transport. And uh, if, if you don't behave, uh, you're digital, you won't be able to pay with cash. They were just a week ago, they were saying with the public, the new public transport, you can't pay with cash, only digital card, because they actually said because cash, you know, can promote can uh, because of COVID, right? Cash. Of course. Uh, of course. Literally, yeah, it's, that's what it said. And so you can, I can in real time see this dystopia developing. Most people like they have no idea. I explain this stuff to them and they look at me like I'm crazy. And it's like, it's all in these freaking concept reports. I sit down for days reading this and I'm the crazy one. No, it's like right here, you're the crazy one. And yeah, it's, 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 it's expanding, it's developing. I don't, I don't, I'm not um, optimistic on that front. Well, the optimistic part of me is that. You know how usually with all those projects, then half of the things don't work. So it looks very nice in paper and it looks, well, attractive in some way if it were well intended and if it worked. But then one, one hack and that, that entire resilient city goes to hell. And then people will have to scratch their heads and think, oh, maybe who could have thunk? Who could, like, like it was impossible to predict that it was crash. But then it's just inevitable that with so many dependencies on the digital and all those smart devices talking to each other, it's like one power outage and then hospitals and banks and, and so it just might not work. And if it really doesn't work, then people might have to, get back to reality. I mean, like, I obviously have no idea what's going to happen because the desire to install all those systems is extremely strong and the money behind it is extremely impressive. But there's still physical reality and there's still, like, things just don't work. Like, a regular computer, it freezes, Things start working, devices Zo break. Zo Zoom calls freeze. Yeah, Zoom calls freeze when we do an interview. <laughs> but but yeah, so my hope is that the ambition is way ahead of what can actually happen in the real world. Like, of course, if people are completely enslaved mentally, then no matter what doesn't work, they would just feel more and more depressed and explain it away. But yeah, I, I, I'd agree with you. Um, like even as you say, in everyday things with even my computer, I have issues with uh, simple things. So I, I, I agree that they, they will have difficulty um, in that sense. And other guests that I've had on recently, the Dutch academic Keys, Vanderpale, uh, another say that it was a Tom Luongo also that I had on that says what they're planning is just nuts. Like it, they can't. Alex Craner also who I yeah talked with um they can't carry this out it's just too grandiose um it's not nuts but i i think they maybe would be able to carry it out on the most basic level and we're seeing them now if they hit the key nodes like you see what's happening in canada if they get your right. bank account uh you know you can't work at, at most places so job bank um driving a car or, or certain areas of travel that does a lot of damage, enough damage. Uh, um, but then, you know, we go into our parallel structures and that's kind of the, the fun of it. As you said, the, the hacks yeah. or things breaking down, that's like the fun of, <laughs> we have, I'm the kind of person that just laughs um, in times of crisis. Like I, I don't like to cry or, or be depressed in that sense. It's like, if we're going to die, let's, let's, you know, laugh while we're being burned at the stake. But um that's the fun of like living in a scientific dictatorship or dystopia. And I, I think of all those like novels, right? Uh, dystopian novels of the 20th century, like all those characters trying to survive, uh, you know, going around these systems, you know, ha hacking or whatever. That's it's like kind of like a video game. You're living in a game and you're just trying to, 
you're, you're trying, it's a cat and mouse. You're trying to, uh, and I think that's what it's going to, going to be like, you know, I was listening to the greater reset, Derek Broses. Uh-huh. Uh, they just did a conference and my friend, James Guzman, uh, did a, uh, from the borderless podcast, did a great, um, 20 minute talk on agorism. Uh, and that's kind of like, that's how it's been since the beginning of time. But this is, this especially gets accentuated during uh, totalitarian regimes, this barter agorist, uh, you know, black gray market systems. So yeah, I'm kind of with you. It's a little bit Mad Maxi kind of uh-huh. world. Um, but yeah, I don't think they're going to fully succeed the way that they think they, they will, or they want us to think they will. But they, I think they could succeed enough that it will make life very difficult. It probably depends on the people. Like ultimately imagine if 51% of the people right now say just we're not doing this. I mean, they're done. I mean, they're, they're, that's why they, they're, they're blowing so much smoke. And in Canada, they're so desperate. They go into such extreme measures because what they're doing is so outrageous. It's like if people really push back, there's not much they can do. And even now, it's unclear if there's a bank run in Canada and then... You it's know, not cl- it's-, it's not clear, but that, 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 that's what my recent guest, Michael Recknewald, said. Also, one of the biggest dangers is, is exactly this, what you said, is the people, our fellow citizens. This is the biggest danger. I, I was telling him, like, we're having people turn on us now. Like, it's the, the new people on the new, new normal ideology and those who are not. Uh, and they're like our friends and some of our neighbors and friends and family. And this is the key. It's it's seeming that there's a large portion going along with it. So this is why I'm also not so optimistic because I see such a huge percentage going along with the new normal ideology. So it's not looking good. It's like more than 50%. So as you said, if we had more than 50% that rejected it, great. We're going to stop it, slow it down. But so many people are falling for this. <laughs> like I have a feeling for some reason that... It is like people who are the most scared, they're the most vocal in many ways. And I have a feeling that the majority wants nothing to do with it. But the people who are most, it's like if people who are freaking out over COVID or freaking out over like bad words or political correctness and all those things, then, or you know what I mean? So they are screaming because they are hurting. Well, for possibly delusional reasons, but their hurt is real. That's why they're screaming about, like they're complaining about the truckers, for example. But a lot of people are like perfectly sane or mostly sane about it. They just, they don't want to talk because they have jobs and peer pressure and just like too much stink. But I have a feeling that the majority do not want the new normal at all. So we are actually the majority. But yeah, it goes back to who's talking talked about this Ma- Ma- Matthew Desmiat, the uh, yeah, mass, yeah. mass formation guy. That right. yeah, that there's like a core group of us, like you and me, who are the the dissidents, outspoken, uh, and then there's a core group of true believers, right? And then there's that other group you just described, which could be like 40 percent that understand something is not right. But the, I always discuss cowardice that they're not fearless or brave enough to stick their head above the parapet, that they don't want to lose their jobs or whatever. And again, for me, this is what I was saying earlier. This, I think this is a key thing we have to strive for as humans, this integrity, this vigor, this intensity of, of, of being a you know, man or woman is like, um, this, this is what we should be able to take these huge, huge risks, um, for what is right, even if it's going to cost you. And I've always, I've always looked down on that. I've always looked down on people who, who cower in that sense, because I, I w- I've read all of these great, you know, great personas in history who stood up for great things, you know, going back thousands of years from the 20th century, you know, all of the civil rights movements and the Martin Luther Kings and Gandhis and you name it. And uh, William Wilberforce, who helped end slavery in the British Empire. And and that's like, I've always been attracted to that. We should all have that mentality. The more people who had that mentality, 
the sooner these problems, you know, we could deal with these problems. But just so many people capitulate and, and comply. And I don't get it. Maybe it's just human nature, bad part of human nature. Well, I think it's human nature. I think what my observation is that people start acting fearless when they feel like the danger of not doing that is larger than the danger of doing that. And I think that even the most courageous people, I mean, they've had some experience that taught them that. It's like, because I think, well, kids can be brave in the very early phases of their life, but then somebody beats them, somebody yells at them, somebody shames them, and then they duck. And then it takes a very special experience to remind a human being, after all the beating that one experienced, that maybe that beating is not the most scary thing. Yeah, like, that's kind you know, of... Like, like, in my case, it was, you know, the abusive marriage and then the way he, that he set me up and I was in jail for, like, nothing. It was like, completely absurd because I did not push back properly. So that got me to understand that not pushing back can actually have really bad, like, it can be really unpleasant. So it it's wasn't actually... some kind of wisdom, theoretical something I sat on a hill. No, it was just that I felt so much pain as a result of not pushing back that... That's... Yeah, the calculation happened that next time it's better to push back because it's just it can hurt too much. Yeah, it's like what we're witnessing on the societal level now. Right. Like if, if you don't push back against this uh, regime. And I know I saw a trucker this morning in Canada saying they asked him, are you willing to lose your uh, truck? Tr they're going to take your truck. Uh, are you, you know, are you willing to lose your truck? And he's like, yeah, it's just a material possession. It's like when people have nothing left to lose, you know, as Gerald right. Salente says, uh, they lose it. And as yeah, as you say, it's like when the threat has become greater, like it's it's going to be worse living in this regime. So, you, I mean, you have nothing to lose, like right. you're willing to lose everything. And as well as what you said, I've gone through interesting experiences where um, I think it was back like 2004. I was the manager of a supermarket in Chicago. It was called Happy Foods. I used to call it, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a joke, I called it crappy foods, we would call it. I mean, it was the owners were great, you know, great place to work. I worked there for five years. Since I was 15, you were legally allowed to work in the US. And uh, it, it was a great experience because I started as a 15-year-old getting paid $6 an hour from the bottom, pushing shopping carts, collecting shopping carts. And then I made my way up to the manager, you know, getting $15 an hour. And that's just, you know, accomplishing that, that merit-based let's say capitalism, just based on your work ethic, just rising. And I got held up one evening, you know, three guys came in with masks and had a, held a gun to my face, so opened the safe, uh, you know, take the money. And, um, and that was, uh, let's say, for me, a shocking experience. You know, first time I have a gun pointed at you. And I was like shaking after that. You know, the cops, you call the cops, the cops came. I got a dollar raise after that. The, the, my employer didn't want to lose me because I was a good worker. So he gave me a dollar <laughs> raise. But after that, like later, then I studied Krav Maga and other things. And it's like, I was no longer afraid. That was like a whole wake up experience. And then soon after that, I went to Mongolia and I was in Ulaanbaatar, uh, going to go meet with some friends, have breakfast in the capital of Mongolia. And I was walking in the early morning and some guy had an empty vodka bottle. And as we're going to pass between two buildings, he smashes it against the wall. Now he's got the sharp object ready to stab me. And he's like, he asks me for money. And in that moment, I was no longer afraid. It's kind of like what you say. It's like the, the first time when it happened to me, but like afterwards, I was prepared for anything now. And I was fearless. And I was based on my Krav Maga training, like you're looking for the path of least resistance. So I didn't have to fight. I gave him money and then quickly walked away and... um and then, you know, similar situations I had entering the bus in Mongolia, petty thieves trying to steal from me. And I would just go like this, just push the whole crowd back because I noticed these, they work in groups of two or three. And so these guys were trying to pull my wallet out of me and I just shoved everyone back and I didn't care. Uh, and so, you know, these kinds of experiences. And then what happened, I don't remember in Mexico, my home was broken into three times in Mexico. I've had a cop extort me in Mexico. And so... Like the more you have these experiences, the less fear you have. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, yeah. No, I, I think that this is, I, I, I agree with you because 
with this COVID thing also, I think if the pressure becomes too much, a lot more people will be pushing back. Right now, many don't realize that it's going to get to them. And so they hope that by kind of just maneuvering it, and like there might be some truth to that. I mean, because obviously opening one's mouth is dangerous. It, it can be. But in general, the way the society is moving, it's not likely that compliance is going to help anybody. Because if there's this financial crash and then everybody's savings, I mean, get wiped out. And I mean, I hope it doesn't go this way. I mean, I genuinely hope that it's just like a bad projection. But if it does happen, then people are going to be impacted. And that's but going it, to change minds, probably. That's, that's the same thinking in the under the Soviet Union. Like you, like my, my parents in Yugoslavia are Soviets. Right. Like, don't speak out. It's the same thinking in the totalitarian right. system. You don't want to uh, stand out. Uh, so shut up and also disassociate yourself from, from dissidents. And my thing has always been, it's like, I can't shut up now. Like pe people, even when I tell people who tell me to stop doing what you're doing, it's too late. Okay. It's like, you understand, like I've been doing this for 10 years. They, you know, the whole, they, they've got all these profiles on us, you know, the NSA and all the, the five eyes, all this intelligence, all this global technocratic system, they've got profiles They they know how we work, what our religious and profile what our views are even if i stopped now when this system comes in i'm already marked as a dissident so it's like i might as well double and triple down on what i'm doing you know what i'm saying so it's like there's no point and as you say at some point people don't get it it's like i'm just gonna keep my head down and keep working but at some point it's like uh, the the movie Brazil. Have you seen Brazil? Right, the, right, yeah, right. It's like yeah. this it's Kafkaesque, this system. And so at some point, even uh, they will find something. Maybe it will be just an accident and you'll be stuck in this. You'll be troubled uh, somehow or you make one wrong move, one thought crime, and you're going to be penalized. So, yeah, it's it's uh, sooner or later, this it's going to get you. So you might as well speak up now, you know. Go out oh, with a bang, exactly. a blaze of glory, like Bon Jovi's uh, song uh, from the Young Guns film. <laughs> that's my favorite. Keith, Keith Sutherland, um, you know, going uh, Emilio Estevez, just going out in a blaze of glory. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. Well, thank you. That was another fun conversation. Is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap up? Well, obviously, everybody knows where to find you, but any any conclusion? I would just say being brave.